Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Once every three or four weeks, I interview the author or editor of a new book, collection, or special journal issue that deals with genocide studies. This week, I'm thrilled to be talking with Adam Jones, author of the new collection, The Scourge of Genocide, Essays and Reflections, published by Rutledge. Adam has been one of the leaders in the field for a decade now. He's written one of the three standard texts in the subject, as well as introducing or helping to introduce two of the most important interpretive frameworks in the field. One of them is uh, the idea of gender, labeled often gendercide, and then this issue of genocides from below, sometimes called subaltern genocide. The book we'll be talking about today is a kind of mid-career retrospective, one composed of essays and book reviews and writings on current events. Uh, And it's going to offer us a really interesting chance to watch Adam think about his own career and talk about how his ideas have evolved over time. It's a wonderful book, and I highly recommend it, and I'm really looking forward to chatting with Adam. And so, Adam, thanks so much for being on New Books in Genocide, and how are you today? It's really a pleasure to be here, Kelly. Thanks for the opportunity to talk and to uh, have the time to stretch out a little bit more than uh, most interviews, I think. Well, I hope, uh, I'm sure that it will be uh, an interesting discussion. Why don't we start out just by asking you to say something about who you are and uh, and maybe how you got to become who you are, and how the study of genocide and mass violence fits into that personality. Yeah, it's uh, in some ways goes back to childhood, and in some ways is relatively recent. Uh, one of the advantages, perhaps, of pursuing uh, an academic or a specialization in genocide studies is that nobody really has uh, a doctorate in it, you know. Nobody uh, is officially qualified, at least until very recently, and so it's kind of been unusually eclectic and open to a very wide range of scholars from a very wide range of disciplines, and there's not a lot of gatekeepers demanding to see your kind of scholarly credentials in order to be admitted to the discussion and to the debates. So I had that advantage that I uh, have moved into a field, uh, you know, without necessarily a developed specialization in it. Um, But in some ways it does, as I say, go back to a very early, almost primordial identification with the underdog. I think that's probably the earliest kind of pre-political ethical sensibility that I can remember, um, just feeling on some gut level a sense of outrage or revulsion at uh, vulnerable people or weaklings or the kind of the different or the ugly duckling being targeted. And that certainly reflected, I think, some of my own sense of uh, 
uh, feeling kind of on the margins of things often and, and having a rather uh, kind of skeptical perspective on the world. Uh, I was exposed to subjects like the Jewish Holocaust from a very early age. I remember reading, you know, even something like uh, Lucy Davidovitz's uh, The War Against the Jews, which is a very uh, dense early treatment of the Holocaust um, at an early age in my early teens. Um, and I even remember having, and, and still have this copy, uh, a, a paperback copy of Leo Cooper's uh, foundational book on genocide, mm-hmm. which I must have picked up when I was 12 or 13 years old at a used <laughs> bookstore, maybe just kind of impressed by the word, as many people are when they hear it for the first time. But it, that actually sat unread on my bookshelf until um, events of 1999, um, uh, let me go back a little bit beyond that. I was in graduate school actually working on a, um, a research project around mass media and political transition in countries around the world, so nothing directly related to um, genocide and crimes against humanity. But I had always sort of kept a finger in the pie of an interest in human rights issues. During the 1980s, I was very closely involved with uh, activism around the uh, wars and, as I would say now, genocides in Central America, uh, Guatemala and El Salvador in particular. That's really where I cut my teeth politically. Uh, I was also active around kind of poverty issues and structural violence issues, which I think you can see reflected in my scholarship yep. on genocide yep. as well. But all of this was kind of secondary in my agenda as an intellectual uh, and certainly as a graduate student uh, until I finished that project on mass media and transition. And that coincided uh, with the events of 1999, um, I had already published one article by that point called Gender and Ethnic Conflict in Ex-Yugoslavia. Hmm. And that is in many ways a kind of seminal article in my output, um, partly because it was snapped up very rapidly by a quite prestigious journal, Ethnic and Racial Studies, uh, and made me think, oh, there's actually something that I'm saying here that is of interest to people. But I had been, over the course of the 90s, growing um, more and more interested in the subject of gender-selective violence. I wasn't yet framing it in the context of genocide and mass atrocities. But if you look at the very earliest things I wrote on that, even in, in 1990, um, you can see that I was pointing to what I perceived to be a gap or a gulf in media coverage and human rights discourse of males as targets of yeah. gender-selective violence, being very careful to stress that this was not an anti-feminist critique, that I was very accepting of the need, the fundamental need to explore gender-selective atrocities against women as well and girls, um, but that I thought there was something missing from that gender picture. And in the earliest essay that I wrote on that, which is very much focused on the Canadian landscape, you can nonetheless see at the end a passing reference to gender-selective atrocities in civil wars in Peru and elsewhere. You can see the, that critique beginning to internationalize itself. Then I was very interested in the Balkans conflicts just as kind of a, a news follower, 
I know that I had known that part of the world and traveled through it as a backpacker in the early 80s when it was still Yugoslavia uh, and a model of ethnic coexistence. And so I felt quite a personal connection to that um, part of Europe and uh, published that essay, as I said, as a kind of sideline. Uh, and then in 1999, as I was finishing my thesis, and uh, as the uh, wars and genocides or certainly mass crimes against humanity erupted first in Kosovo and then later that same year in East Timor, and I found that in both cases, and quite predictably, that uh, sort of inclusive framework that I had sought to set up in the um, ethnic and racial studies article of um, attention to both sides of the gender coin, if you like, that's, that's a bit kind of a binary way to frame things, uh, was, um, uh, was vital. I found that that was also vital in applying it to those two crises. And I started to do some activism, some sort of web-based activism. The, the, the Internet was just kind of coming into its own as a, a really kind of game-changing technology for people who wanted to get their, their word out. And that led in short order, in, you know, within a, about a year and a half of those twin crises, to the drafting and researching and, and posting of the materials for the Gender Side Watch website in uh, 2001, uh, and that sort of accompanied by um, the more kind of substantial scholarly inquiry that I was doing uh, by that time had made me aware that there was something called a field of comparative genocide studies. Um, fortunately, at a time when the literature, the comparative literature anyway, was still quite small and manageable. And, and that really is the beginning of an engagement that is traced in this new collection that I've published that you mentioned. Uh, it's mostly drawn from uh, that period of sort of the early 2000s on, but it does, um, in fact, go back even to that period of early Central American activism around Guatemala. Uh, so it's in some ways a kind of um, career-spanning retrospective of my engagement with these issues. Uh, even when, even before, I was framing them in terms of genocide and comparative genocide studies. So, what? It, looking back on them, then, and, and, and as you say, there's, there's a variety of essays from a variety of places, mo mostly already published, but I guess a couple of them, perhaps not. Um, yeah, a couple of, of the longer ones, and I think some significant ones, are previously unpublished. Yeah, and, and, and one at least I really want to talk about here in a minute, um, but. Can you, can you say something? Did you notice something as you were putting this together about how your writing or your interests or your kind of uh, understanding of what the field is about has changed over the period you've been studying it? That's an interesting question. Um, the book is in many ways a companion piece, a companion volume. Yeah to a collection that I published several years ago with Routledge called Gender Inclusive. And uh, there is no crossover between the two volumes, so um, the, the content is independent, but they're, they're companion volumes in the sense of offering a kind of survey of my engagement in, this, in, in the case of Gender Inclusive. Obviously, it's focused on the, the gender-relevant um, scholarship. And one of the things that I pointed out in the introduction to the gender-inclusive book 
is that I didn't really perceive that much had changed in terms of my own methodology mm. and my own, you know, style of discourse or rhetoric. My methodology is a fairly kind of rationalist, empiricist one. Mm. I'm not very drawn to kind of, well, I'm guardedly drawn to some postmodern framings, and you can see that actually in the new volume with the with one of the short essays on gender that's in there called Imagining Gender, where I kind mm-hmm. of deconstruct some of my own photographic images. That's quite a postmodern thing to do, I guess. <laughs> but in general, um, I, I've been quite skeptical of the postmodern turn in the academy, partly because I find it difficult to reconcile with an activist agenda. In other words, I'm, you know, if everything is kind of abstract and there are no real agents and so on, then how do you actually isolate anybody doing anything to anyone else and, you know, and build a, a, a project around confronting that? And partly just because I find the prose style to be frequently <laughs> insufferable and impenetrable and, and, a, and a violation of all that I understand as good English. You know, my... <laughs> my my um my influences stylistically are people like George Orwell, uh mm-hmm. Noam Chomsky, um people who are quite who are not only quite plain spoken in their own style, but are deeply skeptical of the way that rhetorics are framed for um a political advantage and to displace or to efface Realities, and un- unfortunately, I think that much postmodern discourse serves to construct a kind of ivory tower scenario, an ivory tower discourse, which is really of no interest to the vast majority yeah. of humanity. And and I think in genocide studies, or you know, the engagement with mass atrocity, clearly there is a subject that cries out for engagement by someone who feels himself to be a public intellectual and who seeks to speak, uh, you know, in a way that is accessible to any ordinary intelligent person who is um, uh, interested in the subject at hand. So uh, in that sense, and kind of like if you look at Orwell from the beginning of his career to the end, or Chomsky, mm-hmm. um, their prose style doesn't change much. Their basic sort of method of social analysis doesn't change much. Um, the subjects of their critique may evolve, and I think, you know, I've been one of the more eclectic genocide mm-hmm. scholars in terms of the kind of thematic range of my work. But the the core ethical concern, the core methodological approach, the core discursive style, I think have been pretty consistent, not only since I started writing about genocide, but even going back to my teens and early 20s when I started writing about anything. Um, I mentioned that project about mass media, and that reflects the fact that from a very early age, I was a journalist um, Hmm. and also to some extent a photojournalist, which has become um, more significant in my output as as things have gone along. But of course, journalism prizes things such as, you know, clarity of style, concision, human interest, engagement with the reader. And, and these are things that I think 
most scholars don't have a clue about. Uh, I, I won't say, of course, genocide scholars are a shining exception. Oops. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, in general, academic prose tends to be jargon-laden, tends to be flat, if not opaque. Mm-hmm. And I've always cultivated a more engaged and I hope engaging style and and uh, and a more kind of um, straightforward methodology that I think uh, uh, an average citizen is perfectly capable of grasping yeah I uh, I have a vivid memory of the first year I was in graduate school and uh, I did graduate school at Ohio State and uh, I think maybe even my first paper came back with the simple blunt comment, this is not writing appropriate for graduate school. (laughs) And on occasion, I would wonder whether that was meant to be a compliment or a critique, but, (laughs) but that advisor then went on to teach me in a rather military way of uh, how exactly you write prose that is tight and interesting and accessible to the world outside of academia. And that's a, a gift he gave me that, that I've appreciated for a long time. Yeah. It's, well, if, uh, if you yeah. look at, if you look at a lot of my output in this field and, and related uh, subjects, a lot of it is edited volumes. And mm-hmm. a lot of what I think I have offered is the, I mean, there is a real kind of challenge to not only roping together scholars to contribute to a project like that, which can be like herding cats, um, and I'm just as much of a cat to herd when I'm contributing <laughs> to those projects myself, uh, but um, but is all but also presents you with the challenge of getting a uniformly consistent and excellent prose style, and uh, and and that does. Um, bring you, unfortunately, into encounter with people who are, you know, even often very well established oh, yeah. scholars and academics who, uh, you know, it, it's it just really never got training in how to write in a vigorous way. Um, I've often also found it ironic that the highest levels of education are also the ones that no that require no specialized training in teaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, you it, it's you know we uh, we get some great writers, and I hope I'll have a chance to mention a couple of them later on. But um, we also find people who can go a long way without really being able to write prose that is non-lumpy, shall we say? Yes. Well, that's keep it up, man, and, and and let me say to all of those listening, stand your ground and write clearly <laughs> about this subject above all else. You know, it will not brook uh, the kind of academic obfuscation mm-hmm. which is so common, unfortunately. Well, that maybe brings us to one of one of the chapters I found most interesting in this book, and and that's your your attempt to lay out kind of. Oh, lay bare the kind of process by which you wrote your textbook mm-hmm. and how you kind of reconceptualize that textbook between editions. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a wonderful essay. Uh, and I know a lot of people out listening may, may either know your textbook or have used your textbook or perhaps have been assigned your textbook. So, so could you say something about how you decided to write a textbook and, and how you just decided what such a textbook should say. Yeah, the essay you're referring to is called Encompassing Genocide, and it's probably my favorite one in the book just because it is 
more personal and more mm-hmm. subjective than genocide scholars or any scholars are usually encouraged to be. And this was one of the luxuries of being able to self-edit my own collection and, <laughs> and basically not have to pass through any gatekeeping process beyond satisfying the publisher that it had something to say. But it explores, <coughs> excuse me, the um, uh, processes you say of generating the idea for the textbook, which was not originally mine. It came about at a conference in Durban in South Africa where I happened to sit at the elbow of a gentleman named Craig Fowley, who is a senior editor at Routledge. Um, And uh, Craig's job uh, was basically, and I've described this in the introduction to the textbook, um, to roam around the world, keeping, you know, attending uh, conferences and keeping his ears open for promising-sounding scholarship. And I chanced to be sitting next to him, and uh, we struck up the conversation, which I'm sure he's had many times before, where he asked me what I was working on these days, and I told him. And he sort of looked up from his plate of food and said, "Um, is there a good textbook on that? Hmm. And I said, well, (laughs) and that led to a discussion about, you know, a couple of pretty worthy volumes, um, uh, Chalk and uh, Jonathan's History and Sociology of Genocide, uh, the Century of Genocide uh, collection edited by uh, Totten et al., um, but I pointed out that, you know, um, the, the uh, Chalk Jonason volume was relatively old now and has never gone into a, uh, even back then, was relatively dated and had never gone into a second edition and still hasn't. Um, the Century of Genocide volume, which is a wonderful book, as, as is History and Sociology of Genocide, both, both of them are books that I draw upon extensively in my own work, uh, but Century of Genocide is a kind of edited collection uh, of you know, different contributions from different authors. And I've done that myself, and it's a very valid approach. But one of the things that I thought was missing was, first of all, a truly encompassing single-authored textbook, and one that could therefore have a unified voice and an opinionated voice, not a strident voice, I hope, but a and an opinionated one that was willing to sort of take a stand at various points and not just kind of passively, you know, put put everything on the table for people. Um, And secondly, and crucially, one that was interdisciplinary, at least as far as the social sciences were concerned. And that kind of gave rise to what I think was a somewhat uh, unprecedented approach in in part three of the textbook, Social Science Perspectives, Mm -hmm. to sample systematically perspectives on genocide uh, from um, uh, political science, my own specialization, but also from sociology and anthropology, uh, crucially from psychology, from gender studies. Um, and uh, so that, that was an important part of the project to make it inclusive of those interdisciplinary perspectives, because I think this is one of the most interdisciplinary fields in the world, and it's, it's really all hands on deck in a very exciting way. And I think maybe the most exciting thing about writing the textbook, uh, probably the scariest thing about writing the textbook, <laughs> too, was having to throw myself into those disciplinary areas 
you know, my grounding in psychology was Psych 100. I do confess mm-hmm. that in the text. Um, and, you know, it was like I had to get out there and really dive into li- a literature that in, in terms of the specific genocide component was still manageable, but also, of course, any of these draw you into related fields. I had some, gra- uh, I think, a fairly good grounding in sociology. I had a pretty solid grounding in gender studies. Um, I had to do a lot of work in anthropology and found that just to be a revelation. Uh, and huh. I think some of the most um, important and um, far-reaching work being done in uh, the social sciences is being done by anthropologists because they have to get up close and personal with their subjects and increasingly anthropologists are focusing upon uh, societies in discord, societies in conflict and genocidal and post-genocidal societies. It's a very rich literature and, and still a kind of a compact one. So that that was that was a wonderful side of it. Um, what else did I want to do with that book? Um, in the sort of pre-interview that you and I did for this podcast, I mentioned that it's being used uh, at all levels around the world, from high school to grad school, and that was a very important part of the project. Is that I wanted it to be in a written in a way that was simultaneously plain spoken enough that it would be accessible to people across that spectrum that did not talk down to high school students uh, or to grad students, for that matter, uh, that that engaged them in a way that took them seriously, not only as readers, but as people that really had to make up their minds where they stood. You know, I think uh, one of the things that I like about the book and that I mentioned in that essay you mentioned is that it begins and ends with a question. It's a very long book and even longer in the (laughs) second edition, but it's not a book that seeks to be exhaustive. The subtitle is A Comprehensive Introduction, not an exhaustive overview. <laughs> and so it, it is pitching itself in some ways, is, I think, uh, in a fairly um, you know, self-confident way, shall we say, that it is comprehensive. And I put years of work into making sure that mm-hmm. that, that claim uh, was justified. But that it was an introduction, that it sought to ground readers, that it was not meant to be the last word quite the opposite, but that it was meant to open up a, a fascinating terrain for them to go on uh, to, to explore themselves, and a terrain that is inherently ambiguous. Uh, genocide, as I say in the, the chapter one of that textbook, is an essentially contested concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we better recognize that part of the excitement of pursuing that intellectual inquiry is that we will never achieve closure. That, that it will always be, in the sense, uh, kept alive uh, as a concept and as a debate by the fact that it is open to a range of interpretations. I, I think we can, in a responsible way, acknowledge that while still saying what is crucial is that we not get caught up with definitional issues uh, and also that we not get caught up with imposing dogmas. And that is why, as I say, the book begins and ends with the question. Uh, the, the, the opening question is, uh, in quotation marks, 
why would you want to study that? <laughs> because that's the initial reaction that many of us yeah. encounter. Why are you some kind of morbid or, you know, a necrophiliac type of uh, intellectual that you would immerse yourself in this kind of uh, subject for, uh, you know, as your life's work? And how how are you as a student or, you know, as a younger reader encountering for the that for the first time going to deal with that kind of skeptical or distasteful reaction and then you know pivoting off that to say okay what is the what are the really productive and exciting and valid things about in investigating genocide and studying it um, and the very final sentence of the book is um, may I welcome you to the struggle Hmm. And uh, my dear friend Benjamin Madley, as I as I describe in the Encompassing Genocide essay, um, he, he w- was so crucial in suggesting such beautifully nuanced changes to the first edition of the book in particular. He and I just had, you know, week after week, the most exhaustive and exhausting intellectual exchanges I've ever had with anybody. And one of the things he suggested was changing that final sentence to welcome to the struggle, you know, a ringing declaration. Mm. And as I said to him, no, that's not the tone that I want to adopt. I want uh, there are, you know, huge numbers of other very valid issues out there. Can I say to everybody in the world after they've read my introduction to the subject, okay, now you are expected to be a convert, welcome to the struggle. You know, they they could say, great, now I feel better informed about genocide and I'm going to go off and save the whales. And, and I cannot gainsay that kind of a response. There's a whole range of crucial challenges facing humanity. Uh, I am not expert in most of them, and I value the contributions of people doing very different things on very different fronts. So what I wanted to say was, may I welcome you to the struggle? Is this something that has persuaded you that this is one of the really primary issues confronting our species, and is this something that you would like to engage with in the future? And I think I think it was best issued as a kind of invitation rather than declaration, if you know what I mean. Uh, and all of those kind of values and, and sort of standards of discourse and, and tropes governed the book. One last thing I'll mention, because it ties into something that's becoming really increasingly important to my engagement with genocide and and mass atrocity is that um, I wanted it to be the textbook and indeed the Scourge of Genocide volume to be well illustrated, uh, conveniently mostly with my own photos, uh, but they are increase. It's increasingly a very um, diverse body of uh, photojournalism that I've developed around the world, from genocide sites and memorials and related locations. Uh, and beyond that, I've always had a kind of voracious visual eye and a photographic eye, and it has always struck me that in every other book, major contribution to genocide studies, you have nothing but hundreds of pages of a sea of text. And uh, I think especially for younger readers living in an increasingly visual age, it was vital to engage them visually. Uh, but then how do you do that? How do you do that with a subject like genocide? Uh, how do you show the reality of genocide visually without desensitizing or overwhelming people? 
uh, how do you evoke genocide in ways that are responsible and not kind of ducking the question. So uh, that's been a whole kind of separate line of thinking. And um, probably I went a little bit overboard with the second volume, <laughs> the second edition in terms of um, uh, photographs. I think I'm going to rein that in a bit for the third edition coming out in a couple of years and, and also sort of cut down the length. You never really realize how long these things are until you hold them in your hands mm-hmm. at the end of the kind of um, gestation and birthing process. And I do remember holding that second edition in my hands and going, wow, that's a heavy book. Um, but then thinking, well, it's a heavy subject. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> my students will assure you and me that uh, I never realize the uh, weight of what I'm assigning until they've held the textbooks <laughs> in their hands. So I have, you know, one of the interesting experiences I had, I've gone around the world of um, just from my own interest, but also on genocide-related kind of talks and conferences, and uh, you do meet a lot of people um, who are uh, using the book in various contexts. And I remember being uh, with a um, great crowd of <coughs> students and uh, teachers in Brazil, in uh, Rio de Janeiro, who were using the textbook. And all of this class of students had downloaded the ebook version. You know, like, I mean, uh, because if you're in Brazil, you know, even if you're ordering through Amazon, you order a 600 page book. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, it's going to take three weeks to get there. Secondly, the shipping charges are going to cost as much as the book. Um, and here you get sort of instant gratification download to your e reader, cheaper price, no shipping charges. Uh, and uh, and I realized, oh, that's the way the world is probably going. And I thought, yeah, this particular 600-page volume is probably a pretty good argument for e-books when it comes right down to it. <laughs> it is an interesting question. I don't I don't want to make much of it, but but one of the things you do point out in the the actually a couple places in your the the, the new volume is this how tricky it is to balance when you're when you're using images to balance the need for. Realism and, and illustrating the kind of horrible things that we're studying with the the need to respect the um, yeah the mental integrity or mental yeah. sanity of of the viewer and one of the things with ebooks I suspect is coming is that we will be integrating more and more audio and visual into our textbooks and totally. and that works well in many places but the kind of the the visuals whether stills or movies that would show up in such a kind of e-textbook on genocide, that's going to be a really tricky balance to strike. Yeah, but I think from a pedagogical perspective, it's not a a different balance than the one that we've had to strike in the classroom for a while. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I've always had a very, um, uh, you know, multimedia approach to teaching. It's partly just the way my own brain works and partly a recognition that it's just um, the way that students increasingly are best engaged. And so, for example, when I teach my genocide uh, and indeed my crimes against humanity courses at uh, here at University of British Columbia, um, I'm doing a three-hour evening class once a week, which is um, a, a rhythm that I really love. I, I like being able to immerse myself in the, and, and the students in the material for that kind of protracted period. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm showing sort of extensive PowerPoint throughout the lecture portion of those evening classes. And then the final hour is always a documentary with maybe discussion if time permits. 
And so I've confronted that issue, particularly with the documentaries. Holy smokes, um, you know, by the end of a few weeks of, of genocide documentaries, you know, students have been exposed to a lot of pretty intensive stuff. Um, and so one of the things that I've tried to do, and I can mention also in this context a little volume that I wrote called Crimes Against Humanity, A Beginner's Guide, uh, for a publisher in the UK called One World. Um, it's not a how-to guide to commit crimes against humanity, I should say. Uh, but one of the things in approaching that little volume that I tried to do was to take on crimes against humanity not only as litanies of atrocities or patterned, patterns of atrocity in, in human history and contemporary affairs, but also as sites of contestation and struggle and resistance. So, I mean, you can do the crime against humanity of enslavement, and of course you've got one of the shining example of the abolitionist movement, one of the great social movements against atrocity. You can do the chapter on rape and sexual crimes and talk about the way that dedicated feminists have really put that issue on the agenda. Uh, you know, and in other words, to to avoid confronting readers and viewers with materials that are disempowering, or at least too many materials that is, are disempowering. Look, the confrontation with genocide is the confrontation with the heart of darkness from a kind of moral and ethical point of view, and you're not going to escape that. Um, and you shouldn't try to duck that. And part of that is the really, really cruel and atrocious nature of what goes on. And if students, if that all gets kind of foggy, you know, the way that in the movie Hotel Rwanda, you know, the most you ever see of the Rwandan genocide is like through the mists on a country mm -hmm. road, you know, mm -hmm. shrouded bodies kind of things, you know, anonymous. Well, you know, if, if that's really the kind of visual image of genocide that, that people are left with. We're not doing anything, any kind of justice yeah. to the subject. But if we're just watching, you know, accounts of dastardly people doing the most dastardly things, then we're um, missing the opportunity, I think, to shake it up with survivors, you know, stories of people turning... Um, survival into creativity, uh, people uh, turning survival into reconciliation, uh, people who rescue during genocides rather than killing during genocides, um, some of the institutions and mechanisms and, and interventions that we've developed to confront genocides. You know, there's a, there's a, a brighter picture, which I think very frankly and, and systematically we have to include in this or we're just going to overwhelm people with the, the darkness of it all. Yeah, I, uh, one of the ways I address that in, in my class is that uh, every week we have a five-minute break in the class where someone is asked or invited to present a moment of joy, which may be a video of kittens or uh, a favorite piece of poetry or song lyrics or a piece of art or something that makes them happy so that we can uh, we can take a, a break from the heaviness. But but let me change direction a little bit because sure. one of the things that um, that I really like about this volume is that it because of the the kinds of essays that are reproduced and the, and the time span it, it encompasses, you get a chance to 
think about some important issues from a variety of different perspectives. And, and, and you, you mentioned before that you don't want to get caught up in, in, in kind of definitional issues per se, and I, I think that's wise. But, but I, would, I, I guess I'd reframe that a little bit and ask you, uh, with, it, with a chapter on structural genocides and, 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 and chapters on gendercide and chapters on political violence and some other things, mm-hmm. what exactly does genocide studies study and how do you understand in what genocide is as you kind of ask yourself that question? Yeah. Well, I think it's first of all useful to mention that when we talk about things like gendercide, um, uh, which is the kind of other side, if you like, that I've mm-hmm. uh, that I've looked at most closely. We're not talking about things separate from genocide. We're talking about a kind of typology of genocide, uh, 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 um, you know, uh, a spectrum, a continuum of genocide. If we look at the kind of structural perspective on things, um, but we're we're talking, I think, about different forms and strategies of genocide in much the way that we talk about different forms and strategies of war. You know, nobody says that, oh, war is such a cloudy concept because we talk about civil war, we talk about nuclear war, we talk about world war, we talk about guerrilla war, we talk about limited war, and we thereby encompass, you know, an incredible diversity of phenomena and events. But we can agree that there is something conceptually um, that binds them together, even if there is debate at the margins and gray areas about the use of the language and what should be the threshold to be considered a war and so on. That's hotly debated. Um, and I think the, the, the arguments about, around genocide are, are quite similar in a lot of ways. I think the definitional issues are very interesting, and when I say that we shouldn't get caught up in them, I I didn't mean that we shouldn't engage with them, but rather that we should never be paralyzed by them, Um, that we should never let, for example, our interventionist drive to confront mass atrocities be caught up unnecessarily in a debate as to whether those crimes, those atrocities constitute genocide under international law or crimes against humanity, etc. Now, I have my own preferred definition of genocide. I outline it in the textbook, and I've been quite consistent in it. It's basically Stephen Katz's definition with a bit of tweaking. Um, it allows me <laughs> quite... Um, you know, in a, in, a, in a somewhat self-interested way, I would have to say, because I'm drawn to a broader framing of these issues. I'm drawn to an engagement with indirect as well as direct forms, historical forms as well as kind of, you know, let's say processual forms as well as event-based mm-hmm. forms of these phenomena. So I, I'm drawn towards a framing that includes groups, for example, uh, target groups beyond the genocide convention's understanding of genocide. So beyond mm-hmm. ethnic, national, racial, and religious groups, the four groups protected under the genocide convention, Katz's definition, which I also adopt, incorporates political groups, social classes, gender groups, and more. Uh, the definition also incorporates indirect as well as direct forms of killing, but it does, and this is the kind of narrow 
aspect of it compared to many other definitions, it does place the emphasis squarely on mass killing. Uh, the tweaking that I did is that cats, uh, in, in a project which is basically aimed at arguing for the exceptionalism of the Jewish Holocaust, uh, uses the language of the destruction in its totality of a group, as he defines it. And I take basically the genocide convention language and say the destruction in whole or in part of the group. That's the, really the only substantial alteration that I make. Um, but then, uh, you know, it allows us, but, but Katz does very much focus on the physically exterminatory aspect. And this is a big debate in genocide studies right now. There's quite a return to uh, Raphael Lemkin uh, and his original uh, formulation of genocide in the 1940s, which was more of a cultural and sociological perspective. And when you look at the work of um, people like Martin Shaw, I think in particular, and his kind of sociological interpretation, um, you're seeing something of a return to that rather a broader understanding of genocide as being the destruction of social collectivities uh, beyond um, and not and not even necessarily featuring the physical extermination of their members. I, I think that's a fascinating debate. I think Martin Shaw is one of the top five, you know, most interesting and, and significant genocide scholars in the world. But take it or leave it, my own perspective, like Katz's, is, is that in part because international law practically works out this way, in part because of how people respond publicly to the word genocide, I think for practical purposes what separates genocide from uh, many other mass atrocities is uh, the systematic uh, physical extermination of people according to their group identity. And without that, you certainly don't get an international legal prosecution for the crime. And I don't really think you get an international activist campaign against a particular mm -hmm. case of it either. So, mm -hmm. so, uh, that, that is regardless, you know, my, per my personal perspective, but if you remember that chapter of the textbook, it also does something quite unique in reproducing like three pages of other people's definitions of genocide, <laughs> partly to show just how contested the concept is, partly also to point out a lot of the, the commonalities among many of those definitions. It's not just like a massive, chaotic, um, you know, different, radically different understandings. There are a lot of commonalities in terms of how people understand the agents of genocide, the target groups. But we're never going to resolve that, and we should not really seek that kind of final resolution. It would be presumptuous to do so. The, the, the intellectual side of this project, I think, must always be a complement to the uh, advocacy or activist side of it. Genocide scholars are not in this just because they think genocide is intellectually interesting. They're in it because they think it's the crime of crimes, usually, and needs to be confronted and preferably needs to be suppressed uh, in, in the human record. And uh, therefore, it is an inherently activist and advocacy-based project. We shouldn't shy away from that. And I've even argued, um, and maybe somewhat contradictorily, given what I just said, that probably the longer-term significance of genocide 
as a concept will not so much be in terms of the field of legal prosecution, but will be more, uh, first of all, as, an, as a contested sociological concept uh, that will always be, I think, discussed and usefully debated, and secondly, as the foundation of advocacy-based campaigns to draw attention to mass atrocity and to denounce it. I, I suspect, actually, in the long term, those sides of genocide will be more significant than the strictly international legal component, in part because I see lawyers and tribunals increasingly moving in the direction of a crimes against humanity framing rather than a genocide framing for various reasons. Yeah, and, and, and one of the threads that emerges consistently throughout these essays is, is exactly that concern for prevention and for intervention. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk about, uh, at, at this point in your career, how you imagine we might work to prevent genocide. Well, from a personal perspective, it's become increasingly important to me and, and maybe as I'm also running up against the natural limits of what I have to say intellectually about this subject, because I've covered quite a lot of um, mm-hmm. uh, material so far and a you know, range of subject matter. And, and, and one of the things that I'm concerned to do now is to uh, try to have some kind of presence and potentially influence in a more kind of institutional setting. And something that I've done that's been very important to me over the past several years has been to work as an expert consultant with the United Nations Office uh, for Genocide Prevention uh, based in New York City. Uh, uh, One of its many activities is to sponsor or co-sponsor workshops in conflict prevention, reconciliation projects, etc., that bring together mostly NGO representatives, sometimes um, governmental representatives and state security representatives, the kind of roundtable forums where uh, the dynamics of the particular uh, case or cases of regional issues are discussed. And that's simultaneously an opportunity for them to receive some, you know, training from the office and from its academic consultants about genocide and about a comparative perspective and transregional perspective on this issue. And at the, and and also very importantly, an opportunity for UN representatives and and me personally to hear from the grassroots NGOs, mostly younger people, as to how these societies are bearing up in in a kind of post-conflict and post-genocide setting. And, um, you know, I've had, without, you know, spilling any secrets, I've had uh, conversations with people in the UN hierarchy that have led me to believe that my contributions in that forum are... Uh, appreciated and that Mm. some of the um, perspectives I've put forward in my scholarship have also been noted and read and and maybe incorporated into the policy thinking of some of the actors in terms of prevention and intervention strategies. I'm thinking in particular of the work I've done on gender issues and Mm -hmm. the need to have a kind of inclusive humanitarian framing of those. So that's very exciting whenever you get any <laughs> the slightest vestige of a sense that your theories and perspectives may have some influence in the real world and some possibility to actually shape people's lives for the better. And I'd like to 
think that one of the things that a public intellectual can do is to have that measure of outreach, you know, into the local community, uh, the lecture circuit, uh, the United Nations, various NGOs. There's a lot that we can do, I think, to bring some some systematic perspective, some comparative perspective to these issues. Uh, and it also allows us, I think, in a fertile way to not get stuck in the ivory tower and to make sure that we always have one foot in the real world. I have both feet in the real world, incidentally. I, I travel uh, obsessively, most people would say, uh, mostly in the global south, often in conf uh, conflictive and, and post-conflict societies. I'm about to head off on a, a year-long sabbatical that will mostly be spent in uh, societies in South Asia like uh, Burma, mm. uh, Bangladesh, Nepal, uh, northern India, uh, Sri Lanka, where issues of genocide and crimes against humanity have been very much to the fore. And I find I absolutely need to do that and get out and immerse myself in these countries and these societies and these cases. I, I can't do it from the ivory tower, and I, I would hope that genocide scholars and students will... Um, over time, um, recognize that that's an important part of their engagement. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, and uh, and we've only scratched the surface of the book. So I'll just take a moment just to uh, recommend to listeners that uh, that they go out and get it because it's a wonderful book, and there's much more in, in in it than we've had a chance to get to today. I just asked you a couple last questions, sure. and, and 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 we talked about one of them in, in the pre-interview, and so. I'm wondering uh, if you can recommend a couple books, perhaps, maybe say one of your own and, and, and maybe one from somebody else that, that you think the audience would benefit from reading. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that opportunity, and thanks for the more general opportunity of this in-depth conversation. It's it's really a pleasure in this soundbite age to be able to uh, expand on one's thoughts in, in a way that one uh, usually only has the opportunity to do in, in print. Um, in terms of uh, recommended reading, uh, if there's one sort of you know less well-known project of mine, and and indeed a cooperative project of of mine and and dozens of other uh, scholars and advocates in the field, it's a, a book called Evoking Genocide. Uh, the subtitle is Scholars and Activists Describe the Works That Shape Their Lives. And it's, uh, I think, a quite unique collection of about 60 mini-essays, almost all of them original to the book, in which scholars uh, and uh, advocates in the field of um, uh, uh, anti-genocide and genocide prevention describe sort of works of human creativity, be they books, uh, movies, songs, monuments, uh, documents, uh conversations, encounters that were formative in their own development as somebody who was interested broadly in the theme of uh, genocide and crimes against humanity. And uh, with that project, I really felt that the contributors appreciated the opportunity to speak in a very personal and testimonial way about works and individuals, uh, you know, and creators that had been, uh, that had really shaped their lives and had really um, inspired them to get involved with what generally seems like a pretty dark and daunting field. I think that's inspiring in itself, the fact that the creators 
are able to make um, constructive work out of mass atrocity, whether it's a, yeah. a photograph that bears witness or a, a poem that describes the atrocity or a, a document that documents it. Um, there's something very human about that, just as there's something very human about genocide. It's the, the bright side of human affairs that we are able to pull something productive and forward-looking and shared and communal out of that sort of raw stuff of atrocity. So that's one side of that project. And then, of course, the other side, equally inspiring, I think, is that um, these works of human creativity in their turn inspired people to make genocide prevention and, and atrocity prevention an integral part of their, their own uh, life on this planet. And that reminds us that human beings have always shown the ability not only to perpetrate these crimes, but to confront them and in some pretty key cases to, to banish them from the human record. If you think of slavery, uh, at least in its classic form, and apartheid and, uh, and a few other things that could be mentioned. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that's something of mine that was just, it was a real labor of love to edit all of those different uh, collections. It's a very richly illustrated volume, including some color plates that I was able to secure uh, uniquely in all of my uh, uh, productions. And then in terms of, um, you know, the work that's being done elsewhere in the field, I mentioned already Martin Shaw, who has a new book out called uh, Genocide and International Relations. He is always one of the most stimulating and concise and provocative scholars in this field, very also plain-spoken, I think, and, and a pleasure to read. But the guy that I have always cited when people ask me, you know, who should I turn to next, it's a bit of a daunting prospect because he's got <laughs> two pretty thick volumes out already, and the third is just about to drop. Uh, but it's Mark Levine at the University of Southampton uh, in the U.K., um, uh, coincidentally, I happened to be editing a, a book review he submitted to uh, a, a journal section that I'm editing, and um, uh, I have been sort of I've had it much on my mind this afternoon, in, including his quite uh, unique and personal prose style. But he has written uh, he's at work on a project, a three volume project, actually sorry, four volumes, a plan mm -hmm. called Genocide in the Age of the Nation State which for its breadth, for its historical scope, for the depth of its historical understanding, for its kind of ah factor, you know, of just every couple of pages nodding and going, okay, I hadn't thought about that before. <laughs> There's just nothing like it that I'm aware. I mean, I think, I think this is the towering work of genocide studies so far. Uh, it's an ongoing work. Um, the name again is Mark Levine, L-E-V-E-N-E, -E -E. and uh, the the first volume, fortunately, is the shortest so far. I think yes. of the three, and is a very kind of useful kind of conceptual exploration of the idea of genocide. And the second, although it's longer, is just the most the richest kind of historical evocation of how um, the the rise of the modern nation state has constructed genocide. I should say, incidentally, that I disagree with Levine at a quite fundamental level. You know that he that he that he um, proposes this notion that genocide is an essentially modern notion, and that I kind of accuse him of kind of fudging that claim at various points to accommodate the fact that well. My personal sense is there's not much new under the sun. 
and uh, and naturally modern genocides have, or however you want to define that, you know, twentieth century genocide or post Columbus or whatever, mm-hmm. have distinctively modern features, as modern war, to return to that analogy, has distinctively modern features. But that doesn't mean that you assume that modernity invented war, and I don't think that we should assume that modernity invented something that we can call genocide. Certainly, Raphael Lemkin, who who invented the concept, uh, said that it had always been part of human affairs. The UN Genocide Convention and its preamble says that genocide at all times has been part of human affairs. So I, I take issue with, with Levine's framing on that, but there's no one else that I have such a sense of intellectual uh, pleasure and nourishment reading, uh, even when I disagree with him quite profoundly than, than that guy. Well, we now have something to add to our Christmas lists. And our last question before we let go, and I know part of part of what you're working on now is getting ready for the sabbatical. But um, I'll make things easier for you just before I go and tell all these listeners to not go out and buy a copy of The Scourge of Genocide, because currently it's only available in hardback at a frankly obscene price, and you should wait a few months. It will be out in paperback. You can buy it then. Meanwhile, go out and buy Mark Levine. <laughs> And on another note, Adam Jones will soon be looking for another publisher. <laughs> so, um, so as you think about your sabbatical, this is a mid-career retrospe- or retrospective. Presumably, you're not planning on this being the end of your career. What are you working on now? Well, um, as I say, I, I suspect that the next phase of my career, in a number of ways, will take a more institutional form. I mentioned the consultant work with the United Nations, but another aspect of that that um, I, I hope will be significant, um, I'd like to have the opportunity to do some program development at the academic level. You know, I'd love to be uh, put in charge of developing a program in comparative genocide studies, uh, especially a very prestigious and well-resourced institution. Hint, hint, <laughs> if there's anyone listening. Uh, now I've probably just been fired from my university as well. Uh, but no, I'm very happy where I am, and, and UBC, it must be said, has been extremely indulgent of me, um, more than a previous institution that I could name. Uh, just as Yale University and the great Ben Kiernan were hugely supportive of me uh, uh, during my postdoctoral fellowship there. Um, but if there was anything that ever persuaded me to move on from UBC, it would be the opportunity to do that kind of uh, ground-up program development of a truly comparative genocide program, because even those that do have the the most comparative perspective, I think, of places like Clark University, um, they tend to develop as programs that are pretty much Holocaust plus, you know, and and tend to be quite Holocaust centric still, just because of the academic and and material resources that are available. So I'd love to uh, see more uh, programs develop that that have a comparative framing from the very start. And if there's ever an opportunity to do something like that, I'd, I'd love to participate in it. Um, uh, academically, in, sco- in a scholarly way, well, let's speak after my sabbatical. I think one of the beautiful <laughs> things about that institution is the chance to take a year off and 
to rethink one's priorities and decide, you know, what the plan for the next five or ten years should be. So um, I hope to have some more perspective uh, on that in a year's time. Right now, it feels kind of like uncharted waters. Well, it sounds like you've got a great year ahead of you. I want to say thanks again so much for being with us and... um Wish you well. It's really been a pleasure, Kelly, and I think the questions have been really sort of provocative in the sense of encouraging me to think through some of my own perspectives on this, so thanks for that opportunity. Excellent. Well, take care. Take care, sir. You've been listening to an interview with Adam Jones, author of the new collection, The Scourge of Genocide, Essays and Reflections. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll interview Virginia Gerard Burnett, author of a new study of Guatemala under Efrain Riosman titled Terror in the Land of the Holy Spirit. Until then, I hope you have a great month. <laughs>